so the regular season of British Superbikes is over and at Silverstone, Leon Haslam really made it look as easy as one, two, three. Welcome back to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 78 of Bike Live on Motorsport 101. And if you've been listening to us on Patreon, um, we've literally just finished episode 77. If you download these podcasts um, via <laughs> your your regular podcast providers, um, thank you for listening to yesterday's edition uh, of Bike Live episode 77 <laughs> as we broke down all the action from Mizano um, and picked apart the, uh, the controversy of Romano Fanati at Mizano. Um, if you haven't listened to that yet, do check it out um, as we discussed uh, all of the action for Bizarro Romano Fanati's moments of madness. Um, this episode, though, we'll look back on the other um, major motorcycle racing to take place last weekend as the showdown six were confirmed uh, in British Superbikes. We'll tell you who they were and how they got there uh, over the course of this next podcast. Uh, we will also look back on the uh, summer of World Superbikes. And I'm not talking about this internally long summer break we've been having. Um, and look yeah. ahead to the final four rounds of the season with the voice of the sport, Greg Haynes, um, who joins us very, very shortly. He will also have his view uh, on the British Superbike Showdown, which we will preview at the end of the show. Joining me once again, though, um, at the rather incredible time of 1.07am on Thursday, September the 13th. Uh, Andre Harrison, um, not long to go yet. I am a masochist. I like pain. I am a masochist. I like pain. <laughs> yes, I'm still here. Um, yeah. And amazingly, people are actually listening to this on Patreon. I mean, Adam John's listening to this, and uh, he's enjoying the background noise. Uh, and Cam's listening as well. Thanks to you guys. You guys are also masochists um, for, for joining us live. Join the club. Yeah. Um, so, um, so with alarm calls, I mean, I'm at work in literally uh, 11 hours' time. Um, so... Um, so um, so we'll rattle through this. Places you can find us. Um, first of all, let's get the housekeeping out of the way. Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Motorsport underscore 101. Our YouTube channel, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. And our website is Motorsport101.com. Um, if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101 is the place to go. $5 backing gets you early access to our podcast. $10 backing enables you to listen in live, but if you're listening right now, you already know that. Um, so let's crack on. Um, Silverstone was the site of the final regular season round of the British Superbike Championship last weekend. Um, although not the circuit that if you were looking at your pre-season programs, not the circuit layout you were expecting. Uh, because, of course, after the controversy of Silverstone's MotoGP round, they decided to race around the national layout. Um, last weekend. And a bit of a dramatic start, Dre, to the weekend um, that we got at Silverstone, because of course Leon Haslam went in, um, already confirmed in the showdown, um, and essentially looking to boost his podium credits. Spoiler alert, he boosted them significantly. Um, but, but before the racing even took place, we saw that extraordinary high side from him in Friday practice, where um, we saw that dramatic uh, shot, which will no doubt make our thumbnail, really, because it was an incredible image, where you essentially see the onboard camera of that JTP for Kawasaki, and Leon Haslam is flying off into the distance. Um, yeah, as he hides sides off his bike. Haslam takes. We have to name, have to name the episode Haslam takes flight after this one. Yeah, because, and, uh, it, and it's like uh, being serious. I mean, I, I did tweet at the time this would be solely on Haslam if he dominates the regular season and then gets injured for the showdown, and it, and it is a serious point in that. 
the way his season has gone and how dominant he's been, that is exactly the kind of scenario that he has got to guard against because that is the only scenario at the moment that I can see him losing this championship. Yeah, especially off this weekend. Um, like, you'd think now, really, the only realistic way he he loses this title now is if an, an injury occurs. It's as simple as that because... My God, that was a hellacious high side at, uh, at uh, Brooklyn. That was a huge high side. Apparently, the, the the there was paint on, obviously paint, and obviously you know still a damp track. Curbed it, no grip, completely lost the front, flipped over the over the handlebars, and like Haslam put a hilarious shot on his Instagram page, L Haslam ninety one of 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 the onboard camera with his body literally taking front like a frog um, as as he hit the canvas um, in dramatic fashion. Thankfully, only a sore ankle was the worst of it somehow um but um yeah he was fine for the rest of the weekend and as he would go on the show it didn't really affect him at all on track or if it did we certainly didn't know about it because uh my god mighty impressive again from leon haslam but uh yeah not not to the cot of a sore ankle because uh that was a massive high side and yeah he needs to be a little bit careful about that going forward but uh thankfully on this case no real harm done no, he didn't. And uh, I mean, let's get this out of the way. Three brilliant victories uh, for Leon Haslam, who, who um, although he's dominating this season, he still manages to win races without actually coming across as all that dominant. There were three very, very close battles that went mm. right the way down to the wire. Um, yet Leon Haslam, just so many times this season, in the clutch, he just pulls these victories out, um, mm-hmm. which in many ways might be just as down to his experience than, than it is anything else, because there were three battles against three up-and-coming riders who no doubt, especially with Haslam on the way back to World Superbikes for next year, are the future of BSB. Um, in Glen Irwin in race one, uh, Jake Dixon before he fell off two corners from home in race two, and then Tara McKenzie in race three. Uh, we'll touch on each of those. First of all, race one, um, and the battle with Glen Irwin. I mean, Glen Irwin, without sounding too critical, he, he didn't learn his lesson of Brandsatch Indy, did he? Because it was a carbon copy. No. It was precisely that in race one. It was, it was like for those of us that may have missed it earlier in the season, Glen Irwin challenged Haslam really tight at uh, the Brands Hatch Indy race weekend, where, where a weekend where it was raining all weekend, and Irwin had good pace. Probably should have won that first race, but um, he went for a, a, a hellacious dive bomb at the final corner um, on the penultimate lap, um, and wasn't able to make it stick. Haslam got him back on the exit down the home straight towards Paddock Hill Bend, and when when Hazlan was able to defend it second time round, yeah, Irwin tried saw it again. Coming. And this time Hazlan covered the insides, and Irwin could not do the same move twice. And like basically, it happened again. It happened again in in, in, in a Silverstone race one. It was precisely that. He, basically, Irwin showed his hand too soon. Tried a hellacious move on the penultimate lap, didn't work overall. Hazlan comes back a lap later and wins the race. Um, Irwin is an incredibly fast rider, but the fact he has gone winless this season is kind of his own doing, really. Because again, like his tactics, chances have been there. Uh, yeah, they, they've been, they've been. He's not just yeah, he's just not converted any of them. He, he's had chances to convert some of these into victories, and he hasn't been able to do that. And he once again, his tactics were just not quite on point. And Haslam, Haslam outrode him again. Simple as that. Hmm. And and largely that's the reason why Glenn Irwin will go into the showdown fifth out of six and we'll, we'll we'll talk about the showdown much more towards the end of the show in terms of previewing it um later on um the second race then 
Um, Leon Haslam, this time it's Jake Dixon he's up against. And a rather strange end to the race in that Peter Hickman, his BMW expires. That had a, a, an added importance, which we'll discuss shortly. Um, but what it meant for the front of the race is that Leon Haslam and Jake Dixon were battling each other this time, going into the uh, Brooklyn's corner at the end of the lap. It was difficult to work out from that point what was going on. Um, because mm. we'd seen Pete Aikman's BMW expiring earlier on in that race, literally a lap prior. Um, and we weren't sure at that point whether oil had gone down. Now, I still don't think we even know to this point whether it was addressed on air, uh, whether oil had gone down by that point. Because, of course, Dixon and Taron McKenzie both crashed simultaneously. And there are two schools of thought. Either Dixon and uh, McKenzie went down on oil, or Dixon just had his own crash and McKenzie crashed in sympathy, um, perhaps getting a little bit distracted by what was going on ahead of him. Um, in any event, though, Dre, it's, it's another example of, and this doesn't exactly bode well for the showdown, does it? Where, once again, in the clutch, Jake Dixon can't quite close it out. And it's Haslam, once again, who beats him to the punch. Exactly. It's 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 it's, it's another... Again, like, Haslam got a bit lucky directly threatened like that in that sense um and yeah you could even say it was you know seemingly pretty unlucky um that the dixon and tara mckenzie both hit the deck on that one but um yes yeah, it's, it's, that's really unfortunate um and if there was any sus- suspected chance of oil on track after hickman's bmw expired they should have pulled out a red flag and called it quite frankly because that's just that's just far too that's, that's the fastest part of the track at this point in time and that's a big breaking zone. And if somebody loses the front, they're going to land straight on a shoulder. It could probably could break a collarbone. Um, and you don't want that. So they probably should have called it if there was any risk of oil on track there, given that was late in the race as well. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, Dixon and Tara McKenzie were the biggest victims in that one. Um, and Dixon once again couldn't close it out and it basically gave Haslam a, a, a red carpet to, to his second win of the weekend. And a real shame because Dixon had been running very well again. He's been, again, the consistency has really improved on Jake Dixon this year. The, the wins aren't quite coming how they were. Um, you know, like they were last year. Like it's only really not kill where he can really, really get up there and win. But he's still riding very impressively. It's a real shame that that retirement was there because it probably would have been more podium credits he hasn't got now. And it wasn't really Dixon's doing, unfortunately. No, it wasn't. There was also another sort of side story to that second race with Haslam because, of course, he, similar to what we saw and what we discussed in our last show with uh, Juan Mir in Moto2 at Silverstone where he had to drop a position midway through the race, did Haslam, because he had an incident with Bradley Ray um, where... Haslam goes at the inside of Bradley Ray into Luffield at the end of the lap and essentially just pile drives him out of the way um, yeah. and forces Bradley Ray wide. Now, Haslam was given a one-place penalty, but because of the unusual um, sort of layout of Silverstone way, the, the pit wall is on the inside of a right-handed, fast-sweeping bend, really. And obviously the riders mm-hmm. are looking around the corner, they're not going to be looking over to their right to look over for a pit board or to look for a board telling them to drop a place. So it took a while to communicate that to Haslam. Um, yeah. And by the time he got that message, it was very difficult to judge whether he'd actually, in the grand scheme of things, dropped a place. Um, mm. Because he, he gained a couple of places and then dropped back again. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of academic in a way because we're, we're discussing podium points here. But in a sense, Dre, was Haslam slightly lucky there? Because I was never truly convinced that he actually dropped a spot at any stage. A little bit, um, I guess, in this case. I mean, it was pointed out during the Moto3 race 
Marzano that's uh, technically speaking within three laps. So you have to you have to serve that penalty um, for a, a position drop. And as we've seen before, that is pro- a problematic punishment in its own right compared to the time penalty, which. Well, really, both methods are kind of flawed in their own different ways, really. Um, but you know, it's hard. Like, like, it's like apparently, according, they clarified this in the rules on the broadcast. Hewen and Toads brought this out. Like, if you pass somebody, you are then allowed to drop right behind them again, and that is the same as serving your penalty. Apparently, it's a bit like Fernando Alonso at Japan 05 when he was dancing around. Um, I think it was uh, Christian Klein in that in that legendary race where he basically has to overtake Klein three times over because he was told to drop back behind him due to the stewards. It's a messy situation and it's not ideal because, yeah, like, you know, there's always going to be a level of gray area when it comes to have you actually dropped a place intentionally like that. Um, and, yeah, by the time... Like, like, I guess because it was Silverstone's national layout, it wasn't what they were normally riding around. I guess they've given them the benefit of the doubt on that, which I think is probably the right thing to do, given the unusual layout of the track and you know the the mitigating circumstances again around around that. The fact it's difficult to look at a pit board, the fact it was hard to tell Haslam that he's got a penalty in the context of that race. It's fine. I like. I mean, I, I, I'm 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 not prepared to say it had a direct influence on the outcome. It was only a minor penalty. Um, no real harm done to either of their races in that sense. I think you're better off just leaving that one where it is, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's enough there to really look too deeply into it. I think it's just one of those things, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, there was, and... probably, there was probably harm done to Bradley Ray's race, I suppose, because he dropped back all the way to 14th in the end, but he, he did make the showdown in the end as a result of that result. So I guess he mm-hmm. didn't lose too much in the end in the grand scheme of things. Haslam took the third win uh, to complete his hat-trick for the weekend. Um... Again, beating one of the up-and-coming young stars of BSP, but this time Taron McKenzie, uh, who had earlier taken his first podium in BSP in race one on the Saturday by finishing third behind Haslam and Glenn Irwin. Um, But another sensational performance. I mean, he he would have finished fourth um, had he not dropped it at the the end of race two, although if you you consider Dixon and Taron McKenzie's crashes as independent, he would have inherited a podium there too. Um, So a great weekend for Taron McKenzie, who... A showed flashes earlier in the season, it has to be said. He's never looked out of his depth in BSB, but he's suddenly, in the form of one year, he's suddenly turning himself into a genuine top-tier front-running of BSB. And when you consider how Bradley Ray ascended to the top of BSB late last year and into this year, that's got to be encouraging for McCams and Tara McKenzie, not just into the showdown and potentially a Riders' Cup coming his way, but for 2019, he's got to be looking very good. If Taron McKenzie was doing this four rounds ago, he might have actually made and the results on paper for Taron are actually a fair bit better than you actually makes out. A lot of top tens, a lot of top sixes even, and especially since Brands Hatch Grand Prix weekend, he's genuinely been great, and he could have had another podium to that if he didn't crush out a race one of that Brands Hatch weekend. Taron McKenzie has learned this bike really quickly, my word. Um, he's again, a genuine very... match for Josh Brooks now. Yeah, and that is no joke. Josh Brooks, former champion. Josh Brooks, perennial showdown runner. Very nearly won last year's championship right in the back door. The, well, the back door of the back door. Nobody gave Brooks a prayer, and he only ended up three points and was championship runner-up last year. We forget that. Um, Brooks is a fantastic rider in BSB, and he, you know, he, he knows this series at the back of his hand. He knows that Yamaha probably better than anyone on the planet. And Taron McKenzie... 
had almost as good a weekend as he did if it wasn't for the race to Royal Slick. Um, he was in the leading group all three races, very nearly stole the win in race three by less than a tenth of a second and was on the podium twice. And it was genuinely lovely to see his brother as well. Taylor gets hmm. so emotional to seeing his brother on the podium as well. It was a, they're a lovely family, the McKenzie bunch, and uh, they, they really do get behind each other. It's, it was genuinely heartwarming to see. And it's, he's, he's an incredibly talented young kid, so let's not forget that. Next year, he could be one to watch for the title next year. I mean, hmm. It could be a very different-looking BSB next year with... You know, Shaky's future still up in the air. You know, Haslam going to be in Worlds. Um, Jake Dixon's trying to get into Moto2. He's made no secret about that. Yeah, Scott Redding on and, the grid. Yeah, Scott Redding could be over there for all we know. It could be a very different looking BSB next year. Why not plot Tara McKenzie's a potential showdown runner? You make a really good point. I, he missed out on the showdown by 25 points. That, it's yeah. amazing to think how close he actually came. Um, yeah. To show, when you think of how his season started, um, mm-hmm. you know, of course he was a he is a, a class rookie in this series, is Tara McKenzie. Um, so you know he it's a, it's amazing, like I say, to think of how you know he came from a relatively modest position earlier in the season. Um, didn't score points in either of the first two rounds. Didn't finish in the top six until Stetterton, uh, middle of uh, middle of June. Um, and didn't get on the podium, as we mentioned, until this very weekend. Um, so when you consider that his season started pretty slowly, as any rookies would, he came mm-hmm. very close. And if you think of it another way, and we, we kind of scoff at it, the race for the paperweight, he's only 21 points off the current Riders' Cup leader, which is Danny Buchan. So he might well end the season with that trophy um, at the end of the year. Um, not beyond the realms of possibility at all for Tara McKenzie, who is having a sensational rookie season. Um, mm. He's continuing to to learn on the job in BSB. Um, we've we've covered Haslam's triple win, but the the story of Silverstone, as always has been ever since this format of championships has been in place, or so the, the 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 story of the final regular season round is who makes the top six. Uh, we already knew that Haslam and Dixon were in um, by virtue of the results already going into Silverstone. Now four spots needed to be filled. Two of them were filled on Saturday. Um, with Josh Brooks and Glenn Irwin qualifying as of right of their results um, in race one of the weekend. Bradley Ray, despite only finishing 14th in race two of the weekend, the first of the two Sunday races, qualified there. Now, those three we kind of already predicted would make it. The big story really was who would be the sixth man in. Um, mm. The three that we were expecting to fight for it were Peter Hickman, Danny Buchan, and Christian Id. Um Now... So many stories surrounding each of these riders um, through the weekend. But the biggest story of them all, much like last year, Dre, surrounds Christian Iden, um, who was was <sighs> desperately unlucky last year to miss out um, based on the farcical um, race in uh, the final race at Silverstone last year, which practically took place underwater. Um, and, you know, Luke Mossy made it, or it wasn't Luke Mossy then, uh, but it was Christian Iden who didn't make it in. Um, and particularly mm. did, and um, Christian Eden effectively found himself down at the deep end. Uh, Dan Loonfoot was at the shallow end and won the race, uh, but Christian Eden mm. didn't make it into the showdown. This year, Christian Eden crashes on Saturday morning, breaks his collarbone in three Nasty. places. Um, now, ask yourselves, listeners, in a mere, of a mere mortal, what would they probably do next? Well, Christian Eden decides he's going to race three times at Silverstone anyway. <laughs> Um, because the guy's insane. Um, now, he, he takes part in the first race of the weekend, and in all fairness, didn't go all that well. He barely scored any points. 
um, based on the fact that he was probably struggling to um, pick the bike up through the left-handed corners and actually get it around. Um, but a, a, a simply superhuman performance from him during race two, the first of the two Sunday races, um, where, yes, there was a, an element of fortune in that we had those three riders towards the end, uh, sorry, the two riders towards the end that went down and one rider went down after the finish, you know, Halloran. But Christian Iden, with a collarbone broken in three places, went out there on Sunday afternoon at Silverson and finished fifth. Fifth! What do you want me to say? And, like, and the poor guy still didn't make the bloody showdown. <laughs> I feel so bad for this man. What What has Christian Iden got to do to make another showdown? Like, this is ridiculous. Man completely destroys his collarbone a day before... Normally, you're going to hospital and getting a plate put in for a couple of lumps. He rides through it, finishes fifth in race two, tenth in race three, and still didn't make it in because Peter Hickman had the eighth place in round one, and that was just barely enough to get him over the line. Um, <laughs> I, I, my heart bleeds for this man. It really does. Iden could literally give no more physically, and he still didn't make it in. For the second year in a, in a row, the door's been slammed in his face, and it wasn't really his own doing. Um it's hard not to feel sorry for him. That is a that is a shame because Iden is a great talent. He's very consistent. He's a top six level guy. He's a guy that should be in the showdown. He's fast. He's consistent. He does it on not the most ideal bike in the world because Tyco BMW have their struggles have been well documented in the last two or three years um, in this series. And he's still you know thoroughly had the measure of Michael Laverty further down the championship as well and his teammate. And he's done all he can. Um, you know it seems to be that you know once again injury has done him in this season and if it wasn't for the you know, for the weekend at Alton Park he missed he probably would have sailed through most likely and uh, he's been very unlucky for the second year running poor fella. Mm, he has and uh, what I think we're seeing as well is that uh, unless you're at the level of a Haslam or in previous years a Burn or something like that where you're winning races when you do show up um, because we've said in the past though the showdown now lends itself to your riders can get injured yet still come back and make it in um, mm -hmm. if they can catch up. But I think we're finding out, as we saw last year with Eden and we're seeing this year with Eden and Jason O'Halloran, um, where unless you're at that level where you are winning races regularly or on the podium regularly, one missed round due to injury pretty much kills off any chances you'd have of making the showdown because Jason O'Halloran had a sensational weekend at Silverstone, Dre. 34 points he picked up across three races. He, yeah, you know, he had a sixth, a fourth, and a fifth, yet he missed out by six points. And he missed out purely and simply because of that broken leg at, uh, at Imola in World Superbikes, cost him four races, and he was six points short. Sigh. Yeah, and O'Halloran, we all know. I'd show it out, level runner, a guy that can win races, has been very good on some time now on the new Fireblade, and... Yeah, like, like of all things that did him in, a, a broken ankle at a race weekend that was the biggest opportunity of his bike career to date, racing for the Honda World Superbike team. Of course, yeah. Someone's gonna someone's gonna be asking how many ladders did he walk 
during that him of the weekend for that to happen to him because as a result he's directly missed out on the showdown as well like that's that's sick that seven through ten spot is going to be just full of regret and pain mm. and it makes me very sad yeah <laughs> it is because peter hickman take nothing away from hickman um who makes the showdown for what the third time in four years or whatever it is um mm-hmm. on that bmw in the year he didn't make it he famously won the riders cup for uh gg speed when they had that three-pronged attack um yep. a, a couple of years ago he makes it in because he hasn't missed around this season now he has failed to score on one two three four times this year including twice at silverstone um where he um because he his bike expired in race two and then it was basically running on fumes at the end of race three it was struggling to run towards the end of race three and it dropped him all the way out the points um and he was basically left praying that results further up the field went his way um First of all, on Hickman, because I want to touch on Danny Bucket as well, who didn't make it in, but Peter Hickman, um, because the one BMW rider in the showdown, because Christian isn't another BMW rider that doesn't make it, but there's a lot to be said for the consistency that Peter Hickman's been operating at in BSB, because he doesn't necessarily always get put in the same category as a Haslam, a Byrne, or a Brooks, probably because he doesn't have the same um, you know weight of victories as them, but... You cannot overlook how consistently this guy has been a showdown competitor three out of four years now, and he's not exactly doing that on premier factory machinery, is he? No, he's not. The Smiths BMW is a small team. It's a very small family-based unit. The BMW not the best bike. Not even close. Um, so, yeah, the way it's going right now... Um, Hickman is swimming against the tide, and despite that, he is—he's ridden that bike to its limit. Um, you know, got on those two podiums has been again another very consistent guy. I mean, he was—he was unlucky at Silverstone. He had a—he had an awful Silverstone weekend with, you know, running low on fuel in race three, race two, technical error, but still just barely got in on this one. Mostly down to the fact he's been in the top ten pretty much all season long. Um, and that's what Hickman does very well. He's not going to punch above his weight on that bike, but he will not make mistakes. He will bring the bike home and he'll have a couple of big weekends where he knows the bike will perform well and he maximizes those chances and he get, he does enough to get in. There's a level of skill that comes with that. And Hickman, you know, is a great rider. Let's not forget probably the most well-rounded road racer on the planet right now let's not forget mm. um um his brilliant isle of man weekend as well his road racing season's been tremendous hickman in his own right he's as good an all-round bike rider on the planet right now i'm glad that the the, the, the big man is uh getting in the showdown again because it's, it's not becoming a fluke anymore he is doing brilliant work on that bmw someone bigger needs to give hickman another go because i think he's really good he is i think he's, he's superb um you mentioned that that area from 7th to 10th in the championship will be full of regret. Um, I'm pretty sure Danny Buchan's going to have a few. Um, now, there are two ways of looking at this, and we'll, we'll cover both of them. Um, first of all, his, his Silverstone weekend, Ray. I mean, he, Peter Hickman, let's not forget, made it into the top six in the end, despite only finishing 8th in race 1 and then DNF'd 2nd and 3rd races. So he only scored 8 points across 3 races and still held on to 6th. Um, mm. Danny Buchan... Of the three races, finished 13th, 12th, and 12th, and missed out in the end by, uh, well, in the end, yeah, what did he miss out on? Four points to Peter Hickman uh, in the end. So, Danny Bocken, who mainly kept himself in that top six through sheer consistency of point scoring earlier in the season, at a pretty solid pace, this was the, the worst possible weekend for that pace to dry up. 
Yeah, because all he needed was three top ten finishes and he was in. Yeah, that's a real shame. That is a real, real shame because his 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 pace earlier in the season was superb. He was he had race contending level speed uh, within him, and it, like the like the last three weekends, it's all just come apart for him. Again, the didn't you know, he left Fruxton without a point? You know, did didn't finish Cadwell Park race one. Well, that could have been a very nasty accident. The one he had in race one, he, he was running third in that race when he crashed, as well. And he's gone to Silverstone and finished thirteenth, twelfth, twelfth, and that's just not good enough. Like Bucken just did not was not able. He struggled all weekend. He struggled in quite. He was knocked out in Q one in qualifying yeah. as well on the Saturday. So on Saturday morning, Bucken always looked like he was struggling. Him being so big. I mean, he's six foot three. He's an enormous fella for a bike rider. He's he's fucking huge, um, for lack of a better term. Um, and he's always going to struggle in a tight, twisty technical circuit like like Silverstone National in this case. That's going to be all about explosive power. He's always going to struggle because he's carrying so much weight around. He's, it's much harder for him to steer the bike around. So he's always going to struggle. But yeah, thirteenth, twelfth, twelfth. He's he's top contender for the Riders Cup. It's a real shame because Bucken, again, has got all the skill in the world and he's more than good enough to be there. It's a real shame he's missed out again because he's, he's very, very quick. And uh, just the last three rounds, it's all come apart for him. Yeah, that's the, that's the second part that I was going to mention. The fact that, you know, purely looking at his season in isolation, he has had an outstanding year um, as Danny Bucken. Mm. No, one would have, no one would have picked him in their showdown contenders or even as a dark horse I don't think at the start of the season he was riding for the FS3 team um, which aren't the, the best funded team in the paddock he's he's a rider who has been in BSB before you know he's had that one year where he kind of flattered to deceive really he was you know showing promises flashes of promise but was throwing it at the scenery too much this year he's genuinely put it together on a consistent basis and I think it would have been a just reward for him to make that showdown just no, of course he's not going to go in the showdown and win the title, but just to be able to take not. that to the end of the season and say, I made the showdown. I was a title fighter at the end of the year. I I was part of that six, you know, that that just just those promotional photos we see of the six title contenders. So him to stand alongside the likes of Haslam, Dixon, Brooks and the likes and say he was mm-hmm. part of that would have been a great, a great story for him. And they still may get a great story to end their year because I'm sure for him and for a team like FS3, an honour like the Riders' Cup, that's the kind of thing that they will genuinely celebrate if they get it at the end of the season. That would be a a, a tangible, you know, a genuine achievement, something they can actually raise to the skies and put on their mantelpiece and show that they've achieved something this year. Um, and, 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 you know, some riders, of course, will take that less seriously than others. Uh, but I'm sure Danny Buck and FS3 would really love to win that. And, and it'll be, it'll be, again, it'll be a great reward for them for the end of their season if they can achieve that um, later on. Um, let's run you through the championship standings then. First of all, let's take you through the points as they were before they get reset. Because there's an interesting little um, side note to this. Leon Haslam ended the regular season on 405 points to Jake Dixon's 257. Jesus. Side note, if there was no showdown... Leon Haslam could have clinched the championship in race one at Alton Park this weekend with a victory. That is how far <laughs> a, that is how far ahead he was. Um, so, um, yeah, he's 148 clear, and at the end of race one this weekend, there would have been 150 left. Um, so, so it's kind of just as well we have the showdown, guys. 
um, because uh, otherwise the show, the championship would literally be over on Sunday. Um, but as it is, Haslam 405 to Jake Dixon's 257, Glenn Owen 236, Josh Brooks 217, Bradley Ray 170. Um, a third of those, near enough, were picked up in the first two races, let's not forget. And Peter Hickman sixth on 134. Um, Danny Buchan, the Go wrong on. side of the dotted line in seventh on 130. Christian Iden, broken collarbone and all, 129. Jason O'Halloran, 128. And Tara McKenzie completing your top 10 on 109. Now, let's reset the points because here's how the championship looks going into the showdown based on podium credits. Um, Leon Haslam has 568 points. Um, <laughs> now, he, he sets two records here. 68 podium points is a new record for the showdown format. No one has ever started the showdown with this many podium points. Partly because it used to be three podium points for a win, two for second, one for third. But you get the drift. Um, even with yeah. that format, it would have been a new record for Haslam. He is 45 points clear of Jake Dixon in second before we even start the showdown. Which, again, is a new record for the biggest margin between first and second at the start of the showdown. Uh, Glenn Irwin will start it in third. Uh, sorry, Josh Brooks will start it in third on 5-1-9. Level with Bradley Ray. They both had 19 podium points from the season's uh, regular round. Glenn Irwin, mm-hmm. Glenn Irwin fifth on 5-1-6. And Pete Aikman is sixth on 5-0-4. The Riders' Cup, as I mentioned, is led by Buckingham on 130. Uh, with Christian Eden a point behind him. Jason Halloween a point further back. And Tara McKenzie um, is tending the championship fourth in the Riders' Cup, if you like. Uh, 21 points behind the... Uh, in inverted commas, leader, Danny Buchan. We'll talk a bit more about the showdown and preview it towards the end of the show. Um, but first of all, um, we have to bring in um, another, well, a special guest for this show. He's essentially become our new third panellist. Um, he's been on this show quite often. Um, but in a, in a couple of minutes' time after this brief musical break, we are going to catch up with the voice of World Superbikes, Greg Hades. Um, to uh, kind of catch up on how, how the season has been progressing since we last spoke to him and look ahead to what's to come in the remaining rounds of this World Superbike season. So Greg Haynes will be joining myself in just a moment. Joining me to look ahead to the second part of the World Superbike season and look back at what we've seen so far. It's the voice of the sport for Eurosport and indeed uh, World Superbike correspondent for MCN. It's Greg Haynes. Welcome back, Greg. Hi, Lewis. Thanks very much. I can't believe we haven't spoken since before Donington and a heck of a lot has changed since then, hasn't it? A heck of a lot has changed. A heck of a lot has happened. Yeah, let's let's get into some of it then and let's start... Uh, as usual, at the top of the World Championship with Kawasaki, who, um, when we went into Donington Park, I think we were all fully expecting Kawasaki dominance there, which we didn't end up getting. Um, but it's astonishing how the fortunes have sort of shifted between the two riders at Kawasaki since then. Um, Tom Sykes' fortunes have kind of nosedived since then, as we'll touch on in a moment. But Jonathan Ray has basically been at his brilliant dominant best hasn't he I mean he hasn't enjoyed it all his own way since then as we saw at Donington and indeed at Bruneau but the championship has very much swung his way hasn't it 
Definitely has. Donington was a tricky weekend for Jonathan Ray in many ways. Michael van der Mark and his crew had already experimented with that new Pirelli tyre at the previous round at Imola. So they had some extra data, didn't they, going into Donington? And they really made the most of it. Everyone else had to respond to that win on the Saturday and use that tyre on the Sunday. But again, they'd had even more data then from that first race, had Yamaha. So that really helped them. I don't think anyone expected a Yamaha win at Donington. Definitely not two. But it was tremendous to see. And as for Jonathan Ray, I think he did a pretty solid, decent job, actually, at Donington because he suffered with arm pump as well in that second race, which is something that's a bit of a niggling problem for Jonathan Ray. It's the one little weakness, perhaps, he has at the moment comes and goes a little bit, doesn't it? Donington's the worst track for that anyway. So under the circumstances, yeah, he was passed by Toprak on that last lap, I think it was, of the second race or near the last lap. But he did a pretty decent job. As for Tom Sykes... Well, I mean, really, 2017, when Jonathan Ray first beat him at Donington Park, that was a real crushing psychological blow, wasn't it? And I know for a fact that's something Jonathan Ray had been hoping for for a long time. I, I mean, why wouldn't you? If I can beat Tom Sykes at Donington, that really is that last, the last straw, let's say, the last, the straw that broke the camel's back, I think you could describe it as. In the same way he beat Chas Davis at Aragon. But Tom, it's just gone completely wrong, hasn't it? It's been a really difficult year. And I think a lot of people involved in the sport and the fans at home actually feel quite sorry for Tom Sykes right now because he's a world champion of the past, really popular guy. Yeah, he's got his little idiosyncrasies, but I think a lot of people love him for that. And it's never nice to see a superstar, I think it's fair to call him a superstar, struggling as he has been struggling. We know he and Jonathan Ray don't get on very well. They haven't really ever got on superbly well even though they did go to each other's weddings back in the day but you know that happens teammates don't always get on and of course it came to a head as we saw very publicly at Bruno I think the incident itself was a racing incident really I certainly don't think it was Tom Sykes fault uh I don't think it was completely Jonathan Ray's fault either it was just one of those things that can happen yeah me and Dre talked about it at the time but that incident struck me as the kind of incident where Depending on which side of the fence you're on, Tom Sykes could easily have given Jonathan Ray more room, but Jonathan Ray could quite easily have just backed out of it. Um, and, and neither neither wanted to give in to the other. And, and as, as we saw, we, we got the collision that we had. I mean, we shouldn't forget there has been some good news for Tom Sykes since we last spoke. He, of course, now is out on his own as the all-time pole position record holder um, in World Superbikes, which he broke at his home round um, at Donington Park. But but yeah, as you mentioned, the, the relationship between the two has started to break down as you mentioned, with the incident we saw between them at Bruno, and it really did come to a head with the extraordinary interviews we saw from both sides of the Kawasaki fence on Eurosport, which had Hisco at Laguna Seca, which the team apparently were unaware of until they saw it on their TV screens. That is absolutely true. In fact, I personally had people messaging me saying, where can I watch that interview? Um, And of course, it was put out on the Eurosport social media channels and got a lot of views there from people within the paddock, who of course were over in the States, and didn't see it go out on the actual programme back in the UK on the Saturday evening. I think the fact of the matter is, Lewis, in my opinion, those feelings were nothing new that the two of them had to, uh, towards each other. Mm. Of course, Bruno was just a trigger, wasn't it? That, was, that really was the straw that broke the camel's back, because that was the moment when they both were very honest about each other. Those interviews were recorded on the Thursday of Laguna Seca, or possibly the Wednesday evening with Charlie there. Uh, I'm not quite sure on the order who was spoken to first, but um, they both were aware of what the other one had said pretty much. And they were pretty nasty about each other, weren't they? Were they nasty, though? I don't know. Were they just being... I think what you can say 
in credit to credit to both of them, they did say what they thought. And I quite like that. I think that's refreshing because I think that's something we all far too often do not see these days in sport. Everything's sort of washed over by PR people. You don't hear the true feelings. So from that point of view, I thought it was fantastic. But it was it was possibly avoidable. I don't know whether it needed to get to that point. Mm. But um, I think what it, we also you know, we also recognised and realised at that point of the, of the season where Leon Haslam, who we'll touch on in a second, hadn't been announced yeah. in Kawasaki yet for 2019. But I think we all recognised at that point that Tom Sykes' time at that team was coming to an end and there was no way back. Um, and yeah, it does beg yeah. the question for Tom Sykes, the 2013 world champion, let's not forget, is what does his future hold? Because at the moment, he doesn't have a place on the grid for 2019. It's a bizarre situation. It really is. How many times in, in any motor racing championship over the last few years, at least, have we had a world champion and multiple race winner? He's still the qualifying king, as you said. He's got that new record there. Left out at the moment, completely high and dry. Some people have said to me, well, surely he wouldn't have left if he didn't know where he was going. Well, to be honest with you, I think he has. He doesn't have anything at the moment for next year. The only two realistic options, in my opinion, are Honda alongside Leon Camier. And I've heard from some good sources over the last few days, actually, that they are quite keen to sign Tom Sykes. And, well, why wouldn't they be? Um, and Sean Muir Racing. The problem there is they don't yet know which bike they're going to be running. Will it be a Suzuki? Will it be a BMW? I know for a fact Sean Muir was having meetings with Aprilia at Silverstone, even though we were all led to believe that they definitely were not going to continue with Aprilia. That seems to have reappeared as a possibility now. But until really they know what their package is, they can't really sign any riders, can they? They need to know what they're signing up for. Yeah, indeed, that's that's a bit of a problem. But I mean, I, I suggested to Dre a few weeks ago that I'd, I wouldn't mind seeing Tom Sykes go back to BSB and try and win there with a with a vacant spot at a Kawasaki factory team, essentially, uh, with Leon Hassan departing. But I don't think that's a move to oh, yeah, Tom Sykes is keen on. Do you um, think he would win? Do you really think he would win yeah. in BSB? Uh, I'm not so sure whether he'd win in BSB, but I think that might be his, his most viable career option at the moment. If there's, I mean, it's a case of does he want to win in BSB or does he want to just be in World Superbikes for the sake of being there? Um, it's a, yeah, or does he want to? How long does he want his career to continue? I mean, he's got his he's got his kids um, Millie and Mia back home here. He loves very much, and we see on social media the affection for them, and it's lovely to see. I don't think Tom does want to retire. On the other hand, is he the kind of guy who would hang around with a midfield bike? In some ways, you know, I think a rider like Sykes would actually perform quite well on a midfield bike because you wouldn't always expect him to be at the front. Mm. So that pressure gets removed in a sense, You're doesn't it? You're not being against Jonathan Ray all the time, are you, either? Which, exactly. uh, which might help he could uh, do it in like his what Jonathan did on the Honda. You know, when he does finish on the podium or win a race every now and again, it's sort of viewed in a positive way, as opposed to at the moment, everyone's saying, oh, Sykes has been destroyed by Jonathan Ray. Mm. Um, maybe destroyed is too strong a word, but when you look at the stats and the results, well, well, he has, isn't he, really? He has, and uh, I mean, he, he course, does have a win to his name this season. He won race two at Assen, uh back in the spring, and amazingly, that's more recently than any of the Ducati riders have won, uh, which is an extraordinary stat, given how well they started the season. They won four of the first six races, Greg, and amazingly, haven't won since. I know it's just something you were reminding me of before we went on air. And um, I have to admit, it's surprising to be reminded of that. It's unbelievable, really, that Ducati haven't won since Aragon. When we did the last show, the last interview we did together, they'd won four of the first six. We were banging on about how interesting it's looking, how different it's looking. It's looking interesting and good and strong for Ducati this year. We were asking if the regulations were going to slow them down. <laughs> we were, weren't we? We wouldn't have believed that we were going to get to this point now in the beginning of September before Portugal. And they, they wouldn't have won another race 
Chas Davis has obviously gone and hurt himself as well, twice in the summer break, which really hasn't helped, obviously. Damaging the left collarbone, breaking it, coming off again in a motor, sorry, a supermoto accident, then damaging the plates that had been put in from the first break. So that's definitely not going to do him any favours. So you have to imagine whatever they say, that's going to be affecting him in Portugal. I might be wrong, but I'm very surprised if it doesn't. As for Ducati, it's interesting, though, because I did interviews for MCN, some extensive pre-season interviews with the Ducati guys this year, not just the riders, but the technical guys as well. And to be fair to them, they did say all, all the way along, Kawasaki's banging on about how much they're going to be hit by these changes, but we're going to get hit even worse than that. And Charles Davis himself, let's give him credit for this, he did say we're going to have to wait three, maybe four rounds before we get a real idea of what's actually going to happen this year. Phillip Island is never, never a proper gauge as to what's going to happen that year. Thailand is quite an unusual track because it's so heavy on the brakes, really high temperatures. People were still getting to grips with the new amounts of revs they had this year. Then we're into Aragon, then Assen. And it's true, isn't it? Since then, it has sort of taken a bit more shape. Ducati were destroyed at Imola by Kawasaki. But looking at their race pace, they were actually slower than they were last year. So it wasn't even that the Kawasaki was quicker. Ducati was slower than they were the year before. So I just don't think they've really got their heads around the new regulations. That's my opinion. Mm. Um, yeah, I wonder if they just all surprised yeah. themselves with how well they, they started the year possibly, um, possibly. with, with those, Maybe those four wins early on. And, and it's interesting because yeah. they've made the news recently, um, Ducati, not just with Chaz Davies' injuries. And, and I, I, I did say a few weeks ago on Twitter, I said, you know that the summer break in World Superbikes is too long when a rider can break his collarbone twice and not miss a single race <laughs> yeah. um, over the course of that summer break. But, um, but they've also made the news by signing Alvaro Bautista. Um, for 2019, which I think is a great signing for Ducati, a great signing for World Superbikes. Um, but is this a team, perhaps, that's already got more than one eye on next year? Um, it's a, I think Bautista is a good signing, actually. Mm. I think Bautista is a good signing. It's refreshing for the championship. Naturally, you had a few people saying, oh, they've got another Spanish rider in there, Dorna, Spain, blah, blah, blah. I really don't think that's the case. I really don't. Um, He's a Grand Prix rider. He's a world champion in the 125s. Yes, he hasn't been the most successful MotoGP rider, but he's never really had the best bike, has he? And on some of those satellite bikes he's ridden, uh, the Grissini Honda, for example, he had some great performances, pole positions every now and again, a few podiums, which was punching well above his weight at the time. And the satellite bikes back then, even just a few years ago, didn't have the same equipment compared to the top teams that they do now. So he's definitely a complete rider. Will he be able to beat Jonathan Ray over the course of a season? I doubt it. Will he be able to beat Chas Davis over the course of a season? Well, well, I don't think we should expect him to in the first year. But he's, as, from a marketing point of view, it's different and we needed something different. I feel a bit sorry for Eugene Laverty because I think he would have been a good mm. candidate to have on that bike to develop the new V4. It's going to be, I don't think it's going to be an easy year for Ducati. They're developing a completely new motorcycle. I think it will be a good bike. But should we, wouldn't it be a bit silly, really, to expect a completely new bike to come in and topple the Kawasaki with all their experience and data with their machine and Jonathan Ray. I just don't think it's going to happen. But no. yeah, as Bautista himself, I think that's a pretty good signing and it's something refreshing. Mm, yeah, and uh, you, Ducati only need to look at how various other manufacturers have coped with brand new bikes in recent years, like Honda, who you could argue are still trying to extract the best out of their new Fireblade that they introduced uh, at the start of last year. And Yamaha have only just become winners um, with their new R1. And then let, let's talk about them. They've taken an incredible step forward really as the season's gone on both of their riders now have become world superbike winners and 
And as I mentioned, as we went into Donington Park, we were expecting a showdown between Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes at Kawasaki there, and they were ambushed by Michael Vandermark not once but twice. Yeah, as I said before, I think it was a, it was a combination of things. Vandermark had used that tyre already at Imola that not many other people had really used, so they'd already got some very good data with it, and it worked wonders, didn't it, at Donington? And so by the time we got to the Sunday race, they'd already got the Imola data with that new tyre, the larger rear tyre, plus the race one data from that weekend. So it was perfect. And then the fact Jonathan Ray had his arm pump issue, you know, that sort of uh, increased the gap, didn't it, that weekend? But it was great for the championship to see Michael Vandermark. You had to feel a bit sorry for Alex Lowe's because only one of them was ever going to win the race first. That was always the talking point, which one of them will do it first. But uh, brilliant to see Vandermark up there. First time a Dutch rider has ever won a World Superbike race, and he does it twice <laughs> on one weekend. But of course, as you said before, Alex Lowe's bounced back, and at the very next round, he was a winner as well. Yamaha had won three out of four. Now, there's different ways of looking at that. You could say we were expecting that sort of performance from Yamaha in their first year, 2016. No way did anyone expect to take it, you know, three and a half years to get there. On the other hand, it is difficult when you're up against people like Kawasaki and the rules have changed this year. Yamaha really was the ones we always felt from the beginning would benefit most from the reduced revs this year for everybody else. They didn't really have to change too much. They've changed a few things, you know, braking for corners, power out of the corner, certain settings have had to uh, test and improve on. And they've done it. They've worked very, very well together. And I think those two riders, although you hear there's a bit of needle between them from time to time, it's healthy needle. And they do spur each other on. They're both professionals. Look how good, how well they go together at Suzuka. Mm. And it's good. We needed a different manufacturer up there and we've got it. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned Suzuka, actually, because that was a fantastic race that we saw um, yeah. between the Yamahas and the Kawasaki team, green team of largely Ray and Haslam. I know Watanabe got on the bike briefly, but it was largely the two um well superbike team combinations of next year going head to head which was a fantastic race to watch and and let's briefly talk about alex lowe's victory at bruno because that must have been as you said morale sapping to see michael van der mark take the first win for the new yamaha one at alex lowe's home round and i did fear for alex lowe's briefly in that second race at bruno when it looked like van der mark who'd just taken his first two wins was chasing him down um in yeah. that second race and I think that told us a lot about Alex Lowe's, didn't it? The fact that he held it together to take his first win at Bruno on a day where it was largely overshadowed by events at Kawasaki. Um, and it's largely contributed towards Alex Lowe's safeguarding his long-term future in this paddock. Well, yeah, that's very true, actually, because both Vandermark and Alex Lowe's had question marks hovering above them coming into the earth, and they're certainly not the only ones who did. To be honest, I think probably most riders on the grid did, apart from Jonathan Ray. Mm. But we didn't know what was going to happen with those two, did we? Um, had they underperformed at times in the past? Possibly, possibly. They both work very, very hard. There's no doubt about that. They both deserve their successes. But we know what this game's like. You know, you underperform and you're out, aren't you, within five minutes if you're not careful. So, yeah, I think you're right. They cemented their positions there. It would have been a shame to see one of them go, I think. Uh, they do work well together. And actually, honestly speaking, looking ahead to next year, they're probably on paper going to be the strongest challengers heading into the season, providing everyone stays fit, of course, to Jonathan Ray and the Kawasaki, I suppose, along with Haslam, you'd expect those three to be the strongest contenders. Yeah, because they have sustained it, haven't they? It's not as if those two uh, good weekends at Donington and Bruno were flashes in the pans. I mean, they very nearly won the very last race before the summer break with Van der Mark at Mizano, didn't they? Uh, when he chased Jonathan Ray all the way to the end. 
uh, in that second race. Yeah. It feels so long ago yeah. now that that happened, but yeah, they have like sustained that um, with podiums all the way up to the summer break. Um, one of the team have emerged emerged with podiums recently. Uh, Armour Walkie Aprilia with Eugene Laverty, who had back-to-back podium finishes um, in Laguna Seca race two and then Mizano race one. Um, it's a bit of a bittersweet feeling, though, isn't it? Because it's it's a rider bike team combination that has finally started to bear fruit and come together just as it appears as if the team and motorcycle manufacturer are going to split at the end of the year yeah it's um yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head the the fact that yes it is brilliant don't get me wrong and i think it's fans the more manufacturers and teams and riders we have in the mix the better you can't have too much in my opinion um however there's no doubt about the fact that if that team and manufacturer combination had got it together a a little bit better sooner they could have been where they are now a year ago mm. because if you look at laguna seca 2017 that friday morning they'd really found something early last year they were messing around a lot and i say messing around that's probably a bit hard but they were making changes they were you know reverting to um, fuel tanks from 2013 laverty had ridden it before and all that kind of thing making changes all the time they couldn't really get a proper reading into anything. Testing is very, very limited nowadays. You have to use the race weekends to test, then you're compromising the actual setup for that weekend. Vicious circle. But had they actually stuck to their guns, I think, and followed one clear path, they probably should have been where they were, where they are now at Laguna last year, because they were at the beginning of that weekend right up there. I think Laverty, if my memory serves me right, actually topped one of those practice sessions at Laguna 2017. And if he wasn't at the top, he was certainly very close. And then again, they went back to changing things, moving things around. And Laverty said to me at Mizano just before the summer break, Lewis, that he basically put his foot down. He said, look, he sort of twigged in his mind that, you know what? Who in this garage actually knows most about this bike? It's me. Because most of the guys he'd worked with there before in 2013 have been transferred across to a prettiest MotoGP project. So he said, yeah, they're great guys. Don't get me wrong. They're brilliant mechanics in that team, engineers. However, he's the one with the most knowledge of that motorcycle. So it sort of twigged, I think, earlier on this season around the Laguna Seca time. Laverty put his foot down. He said, right, I'm sorry, but we're doing it my way from now on. We're going to do it like this. He said it went down like a lead balloon. However, (laughs) as soon as the results started improving, that sort of got forgotten. And he's had two podiums since then. So it is fantastic. I reckon they may well be challenging for more podiums. I hope they are before the end of the season. They thought they were actually going to be winning. Eugene Laverty has said to me for several weeks now, I reckon Portimao, we could actually have a win there in the dry. Need to speak to him this week, though, because I'm not quite sure. last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I'm not quite sure, though, how their test has gone. So let's see whether they're still feeling optimistic when we get there. But he said, if we're going to win anywhere, it'll be Portimao. Savadori, just very quickly, I think he's been, I hate to say it, because I really like Lorenzo Savadori, but I think he's been a bit disappointing this year. Um, then again, he has put in some pretty strong performances at times, and they haven't had a great bike at times. You'd expect Laverty to lead that team. And I think once Salvador is feeling comfortable, you'll start seeing some more consistency. But he has made a few too many mistakes so far. Yeah, there have been some moments, I suppose, where the team can argue they've been a little unlucky this year as well. I mean, I still think back to Philip Pound at the start of the year where they were so quick um, in free practice, and Salvador, of yeah. course, hurt himself. Uh, in Super Bowl, and then Laverty looked like he was checking out in race two before he fell off at the start of that race as well. Actually, so they... I should have said that before. Sorry to butt in, they, but they, they were actually... taking opportunities, I suppose, haven't they? Yeah, they were where at the beginning of the year they were actually in a very good position. They did have a bite that was working very well, and Laverty may well have won that race, and he made a mistake and came off 
Uh, I think the team made an error in race one. There's a few silly errors made in Thailand as well. So, yeah, they lost their way. And obviously, something I completely forgot about because it's so long ago now, but it was wrong of me to forget. And I think you've just mentioned it. Laverty got really badly hurt yeah, this year in Thailand. in Thailand when he was ridden over by Jordi Torres when he came off in front of him. And um, that actually was the main problem they've had this year. Their number one rider hasn't been there to develop that bike and push it forward. So it's just completely broken up the year. Almost exactly the same thing that's happened to Honda when Camille was hurt at Motorland. Mm, indeed. The World Superbike Championship does look, to all intents and purposes, as if it's, it is decided it's going to be Jonathan Ray's title um, for a fourth year. It's also the case now of when he wraps that up uh, rather than if he does. Uh, the championships elsewhere in the paddock, though, look much less clear-cut. Um, starting with the World Super Sport Championship, um, which is led at the moment by Sandro Cortese with four races to go. He's five points clear of second-place Jules Clouzel, 22 clear of third-place Randy Krumenacker. Uh, with Federico Caracasulo and Lucas Mayas, and uh, it should, should be said, MV Augusta's Raffaele De Rosa, uh, all within 35 points of the championship lead. So we can't rule them out either. It does look, though, Greg, on the face of it, as if it is a two-horse race between Sandro Cortese and Jules Cazal. But it has to be said, at the time of recording this, uh, t- uh, Tuesday, September the 11th, um, ahead of this uh, race weekend at Portimao, that there could be a, an extraordinary sting in the tail in this championship battle involving Cluzel. Yes, and I'm afraid it's not very good news. The rumour at the moment is that Cluzel's NRT outfit might not even complete the season. Now, we don't know that for sure at the moment. By the time you're listening to this show, we might know more, probably will. Just remember, back in Aragon this year, that team truck got to the track on the Wednesday and left the circuit because there was a dispute going on within the team. You hear certain stories about disagreements within the team let's just leave it at that without getting into too much detail but anyway if those problems have come back and the team doesn't continue that will be a great great shame especially if Joel Cruzel is left without a ride now it doesn't mean Yamaha couldn't find him a ride somewhere else with another team and, and get him onto a bike to complete the season it would be a shame for the NRT team of course because they've gone well this year they've won three races in their first year some of the podiums as well if that has happened though let's just hope for Joel Cruzel's sake that somehow they can get him on another bike because he would be able to maintain his championship points, 133 of them, and continue to fight for the championship. He's five points behind Sandro Cortese at the moment. We should know more about that when everyone starts to turn up at Portimao. Will the NRT trucks even be there? I hate to say it, but I've got a feeling they won't be. And I know Thomas Gradinger, for example, the Austrian rider, Jules Cruzel's teammate, has taken a lot of money to that team and sponsorship. So he won't be very pleased about it at all if that is the case. But I don't know. There's a long way to go. There's 100 points still left up for grabs. Portimao, Magnicor, Elvili coming in Argentina, and then Lasalle. Krimanak is 22 behind. Caracasulo is 34 behind. Mayas is 35 behind. So you never know. If Cortese hits trouble and Mayas wins a race, you know, he's right back in there again. So it's not lost yet, but it is getting towards that point now that they would need Cortese to start having some problems Let's see. Let's see. I think it will be very telling this weekend to see what Luca Myers, the reigning world champion, can do. Because quite frankly, he lost his head back at Mizano. He started doubting himself. He was riding on the edge, looked uncomfortable for the whole weekend. And it was just culminated, wasn't it, with what happened in the race. That huge high side really early on coming out of Tremonto Corner. So, yeah, if Cruzel's not there, that's good news for Cortese, of course, because Krimanaka would be the next 722 behind. Cortese, I think if I had to put money on anyone right now, I would put it on Cortese. But I've got a feeling about Caracasulo, 34 behind. 
you know, there's a long way still to go. We've seen things turn on their head before in Supersport. You never know in that class. That's what's so good about it. Yeah, it's been a tremendous season, all things considered in World Supersport. It's been so unpredictable from one weekend to the next. And the battle between Cortese and Cluzel, um, it's been terrific. And Cortese will no doubt sympathise with Cluzel because he lost his Moto2 ride uh, almost on the even yeah. season. And very, his World Supersport campaign arrived very late um, in itself. And it would be a terrific story for either of those if they can win um, this championship. Um, the biggest story of all this weekend, though, Greg, could actually come in World Supersport 300. Because, of course, a year ago, we saw history made with Anna Carrasco. Um, becoming the first female winner of a world championship motorcycle race with just two rounds to go in this uh, class with no uh, World Super Spot 300 at Argentina or Qatar. We could actually see Carrasco a year on from making a piece of history uh, in 2017. She could become the first female world champion of a motorcycle championship this weekend. It's mathematically possible for Carrasco to clinch it in Portimao. Uh, yes, it is. And how fitting would that be, as you say, having won that first race there and made headlines all around the world. It was in the New York Times. It was all over the place, wasn't it, last year when we had a first woman winner, first female winner of a, a world championship road racing event. Tremendous stuff. Just looking at the table now that we've got 50 points left up for grabs this year across two races. So technically, a very long shot but technically 11 riders yeah. are still mathematically in with a chance realistically i think we've got to look down to probably galang hendra Mika perez who are tied for sixth in the championship they're 32 points behind even then it's still a long shot but i think that's realistically where we need to look in case there's real drama at the front it's going to be interesting though carrasco's on the the ktm we've seen already this year tends to work a lot better in the cooler conditions. So Magnicore, I reckon the KTM is going to be pretty strong there. It's not going to be that hot at Magnicore. Portimao probably will be warm. What's going to happen though? 16 points. If Gunrad finished second to Carrasco, it goes on. She might win it this weekend. I've got a feeling it's going to go all the way down to the wire. I hope it does. But on the other hand, for the for world superbikes as a whole, as a championship, how good would it be? for Carrasco to win, just from the sense that it would be some really positive news for the championship, world SBK generally, because that would go all over the world, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, some people say we shouldn't make a big deal about the fact she's a female winner. Uh, but uh, I'm sorry, but at the end of the day, yes, we, we should actually, because they are all equal as riders, but we it's a male-dominated sport. You can't get away from that. And it would be a massive thing if we had a woman rider winning. It would be absolutely tremendous. Maria Herrera has been putting in some good performances as well this year with a few fastest laps. But Carrasco is obviously flying the flag. So who knows? Is it going to happen? Is it not? If it does, though, it's going to be massive news and it's going to be tremendous. Having said that, though, Lewis, having said that, if you look back at Anna Carrasco's results so far this year, she's had a couple of top sixes in the first two races, two wins in a row, Imola and Donington. Since that new combined rider bike weight has come into force, She's not scored many points at all. She's only scored 11 points across the last two races. So that doesn't bode very well if you look at it that way. The lead's coming down, 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 and there's still 50 points left. So I think it's almost certainly going to go to Magni Cole, that one. Mm, it is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, it was, I like, mean, Dre was speaking at the time how the Yamaha suddenly became very competitive around Bruno and, of course, Hendra won there. Um, yeah. In a race that, it has to be said, was red flagged. So Carrasco's result there perhaps was slightly unfortunate. Um, in that she was down outside the top 10 when the red flags came out. Um, but even so, yeah, her performances haven't quite lived up to, to the two wins she got here in the season. Just to confirm to the listeners, Carrasco leads it by 16 points from Luca Grunwald, um, with Borja Sanchez a further 10 points back in third, 
Um, Scott Drew's fourth on 55 points, so he trails Carrasco by 29. Uh, Larrero trails uh, by 31. Hendra and Perez trail by 32 points. So that is your top seven uh, with 50 points still to play for. And very quickly, uh, Greg, Superstock 1000 can also be clinched this weekend from Marcus Reiterberger, who's been the dominant force for much of the season, although he has had a couple of wobbles which have enabled Max Sheeb to stay in contention. It's a 14-point gap between Reiterberger on the BMW to Sheeb on the Aprilia with Roberto Tamburini still just about in contention. He trails at the moment uh, by 27 points. But um, Reiterberger could well clinch it this weekend, and he has been all intents and purposes, the dominant force in Stock 1000, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. He was the favourite coming into it. Uh, it's actually been closer than we expected this year. It's been a depleted grid. It's almost certain it's going to be the last year we see of the European Superstock 1000 Championship. Dorna's trying to sort of make it more a three-category thing like they do in MotoGP. But there's 14 points between Reiterberger and Max Sheed, Max Sheed from Chile. It's not over yet. It really isn't. We don't know what's going to happen. That BMW doesn't always go brilliantly in the wet, although having said that, it went all right at Bruno. He was still up there, but they did struggle in the wet with the electronics on that stock bike. So we could have rain in places like Magni Cour. Portimao should be fine. So will he wrap it up in Portugal? I'm not sure he will. It will probably go down to the wire. I hope it does in a way. It would be nice to see all these championships going as far as they can. Um, but yeah, Reiterberger is the man you'd put your money on, isn't he? He was the one coming into the... Uh, who we all said is going to be up there fighting away. I think he will get in the end. If he doesn't, it would be well-deserved by Max Shee. But I think as a package, as a team, Reiterberg has got the advantage there. And it's very likely we'll see him on the World Superbike grid next year. Now, whether it will be with that Van Zon team, that was the general feeling. Uh, we don't know now. They're even saying they could be racing with a different team. But either way, I do reckon we'll see Reiterberger on the grid. He... According to one of the German journalists who works with us in the media centre, is the hottest property in Germany right now. He was rated last year at least as better than Stefan Bradl, better than Sandro Cortese. We'll find out. I definitely don't think he was. You know, he's much better than he showed when he was on the Altea BMW. In it, it was a shame the way he dropped out of that team, wasn't it? As well with the bad injury he yeah. suffered. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. He had a massive never seemed to recover from that either. Um, yeah. By by the power of editing, uh, Dre will rejoin me shortly to look ahead to the British Superbike Showdown, which begins this weekend uh, at Alton Park. But while you have you have you here, Greg, so of course regular viewers for ITV4 will have seen you uh, fronting their coverage in recent rounds. Um, just give us your impression of the British Superbike Showdown ahead of this weekend, which, um, as I mentioned, it gets underway for the first of its seven rounds to decide the championship. Two this weekend at Alton Park, two more at Aston, and then three in October um, at Brands Hatcher on the Grand Prix layout. Uh, Leon Haslam has been sensational. He's almost been perfect for much of this season um, in the British Superbike Championship, which has earned him a 45-point lead over Jake Dixon going into the showdown. And it's extraordinary to say this, given that it's a championship format that is, by its very nature, determined to try and keep the championship close. But even before the showdown starts, Leon Haslam, surely it's his to lose already. Definitely, definitely Leon Haslam's to lose. But 45 points is only 25% of what's still left which is 175. I hate to say this, but it can still all change. We're going into a new season, if you like now, seven races. And yes, Haslam does have a 45-point start, a head start there ahead of Jake Dixon. He's the favourite. It is his to lose. On the other hand, that's dangerous for somebody like Josh Brooks because, I mean, it makes him a danger because he's sort of got nothing to lose in a way now. He's coming from behind. And they're really going to rough him up. You can be absolutely sure about that. But at least Haslam is in a position where he can be sensible. 
And, you know, he can bank a third or a second or even a fourth or fifth sometimes, can't he, knowing he's got a pretty handy lead there. But as Leon said to me in the Eurosport podcast earlier this week, Josh Brooks will be very strong at Brands Hatch. It's probably his best circuit, the Grand Prix circuit there. There's three races as well there, Lewis, as you just mm-hmm. said. So <laughs> it's not over yet. I can't stress that enough. It is not over yet. We could get rain. I mean, look what's happened to Haslam at the last two finales. He had crashes at Brands in 16. Massive crash at Brands last year. I think it's fair to say he was riding a little bit tentatively at Brands last year, in my opinion. Some people might slam me for that, but I, that's the feeling I get. I think he was riding a little bit too cautiously. But I don't think Leon's stupid. It doesn't get to Leon the fact that he's yet to win a championship title on a professional level of any kind because he's never won a championship yet, apart from that uh, British national scooter title he had when he was a really young guy. But he accepts that. He knows that's the situation. It doesn't let him get to him. You know, everyone has their doubters from time to time, but he takes that as a, as a strength, actually, and just uh, fuels fuels his motivation. Who do I think the nearest challenger will be? I think it's got to be Josh Brooks, even though Jake Dixon is closer on points right now. I just think Brooks, with his past form, he's done this all before. He's won a title before. He's got nothing to lose now, and he's going to be going all out. Whatever happens, it's going to be absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Who knows what's going to happen? I wouldn't want to predict it. I wouldn't really want to put money on it, to be honest. Yeah, we look forward to it getting underway at Alton Park this weekend. Leon Haslam on 568 points, leads Jake Dixon by 45 and um, with Josh Brooks and Bradley Ray on the build base, Suzuki, 49 off the lead. Glenn Irwin is 52 back in fifth, and Peter Hickman, um, who scraped into the showdown um, oh, on that final day with a uh, second-hand BMW, which was almost crawling to the line in that final race of the uh, regular season at Silverstone. He's sixth on 504, so he has a 64-point handicap um, as the showdown starts. We look forward to it taking place this weekend and into October. And we also look forward to the World Superbike, Supersport, Supersport 300 and Stock 1000 Championships reaching their conclusion um, before we head to Qatar um, next month. Uh, Greg, we look forward to following the rest of the season with you and we'll look forward to catching up with you again, perhaps as this season reaches conclusion. Thank you very much once again for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much, Lewis. Really appreciate you inviting me on. Hope to speak to you again before the season finishes. And uh, I'll just throw one more thing in there. Don't forget Argentina World Superbikes as well, because we're going to get there at the penultimate round. The title may already be sewn up by then. Who knows? Jonathan Ray could win it at Magni Corps. But Argentina, I reckon, is going to be very, very interesting. Nobody has any past data of that track. That will should, you would imagine, be a very, very open weekend. So, yes, I think Jonathan Ray will win the championship way before the last race. I'm not going to lie. I think we've got some really, really good races in store. And as for BSB, well, you never know with BSB, do you? It's, anything can happen. I know it's an overused cliche, but anything can happen now. So a huge thank you uh, to Greg Haynes for joining us once again here on Bike Life for what was, again, supposed to be a 15-minute catch-up, which kind of went out of hand. Um, but, the guy, but the guy is such, a, <laughs> such an enthusiast about the sport, and um, in, the, in the nicest possible way, once he comes on this show, he's, uh, he's so enthusiastic, we can't shut him up. Um, and we love him for it thank you once again Greg for joining us and uh, we are hoping um, we don't have it confirmed yet but we're hoping for uh, some sort of season review at the end of the season where he'll be able to join us perhaps for even the full show so we shall see um, later in the season um, as the World Superbikes Championship reaches its finale look, let's look ahead to this weekend then Dre briefly before we go um, mm. World Superbikes with the greatest of respect to Chaz Davis is near enough to decide it's a case of when Jonathan Ray wraps it up um but we could see a championship wrapped up this weekend in World Supersport 300. 
Um, Anna Carrasco, who a year ago made global headlines by becoming the first female winner of a World Championship motorcycle race, could wake some more this weekend. She could become World Super Sport 300 champion. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? That uh, basically a year, almost a year to the day since uh, since that first win for Carrasco, she's come so far and is now on the brink of you know, could potentially clinch it this weekend. You know, she's got a 16 point lead with only 50 points available. Because remember, they do not race again until well, they they well, they race the now? next two rounds. They race Portimao Magni Corps, but then they don't go to Argentina or to Qatar. So. The next two World Superbike rounds are the final two rounds for Supersport 300. Right. So, again, like I said, there's only two races to go in this championship now. So, they don't, they don't race the last two in Argentina. So, yeah, only two races left. And Carrasco's in a very nice-looking position here. 16-point lead. And Supersport 300 has been all over the place this season. So, it's hard to take points out of people. But, yeah, Carrasco can clinch this weekend with a win. Um... Most likely, a win should do it. As um, long as again, Luca Grunwald doesn't finish second. Exactly. As long as Grunwald doesn't finish second, Carrasco will clinch the title with if she if she can repeat her historic feat of 2017, which again is, is is up for grabs. Carrasco, if she gets a clear track in front of her, is unbeatable in in, in Super Sport 300. She is super fast, but has not really been the same rider since the rule changes came into play and Kawasaki's her were basically power limited and had their bikes, you know, extra weighted for fun measures. Mm, and we had um, the combined the rider ca- bike weight limit as well, which which was brought in, as, as Greg Hens mentioned um, sh- oh, a few moments ago. Um, yeah, just to give you the full mathematics on that, Carrasco, if she wins the race and Grunval fails to finish second, she's the champion. Um, failing that, Carrasco would need to outscore Grunwald by 10 points, um, which would mm-hmm. mean if she's second, Grunwald would need to be, what, uh, sixth or worse, um, and then third, he'd need to be tenth or worse, and so on. Um, it, it will be it will be explained in full throughout the race on Sunday. Um, but outside of that, Borja Sanchez is third on 58 points. That's 26 off the lead. So unless he finishes ahead of Carrasco this weekend, and the same applies for Scott Drew and further down, um, they would need to finish ahead of Carrasco by a few positions, then they are out of contention unless they do that. So it's looking like it's a two-horse race between Carrasco and Grunwald unless um, they hit problems and the riders from third downwards can pull off some big results. Um, all will be revealed this weekend. The World Super Sport Championship has four races to run because they do go to Argentina and to Qatar. Um, but Dre, I mean, by the time this goes out, this story may well have moved on a bit. But first of all, give us your quick reaction to the story that Greg Haynes kind of broke to us there, that second mm. in the championship, Jules Clouzel isn't even certain to, his NRT team, aren't even certain to be on the grid this weekend or for the rest of the season. Shocker. And that would be absolutely heartbreaking. And if I want to be a little bit, it's the most Jules Clouzel thing that could have possibly <laughs> yeah. friggin' happened. Like, Clouzel, you're finally in contention for a whole Super Sport title after years of having to play second fiddle to Keenan. All you got to do is beat Cortese over the last four rounds, and oh, what do you mean his team's almost bankrupt? Oh, for God's sake! Yeah, there's that South um, Park Margaritaville uh, uh, meme popping up, isn't there? Where the EC sat yeah. in the office with the uh, oh yeah, well, we've got the money to change the champion, and it's gone. Yeah, pretty much. Like, uh, uh, and yeah, like... it would be it would be gutting uh, for Clouzel. Now, as, as Greg was talking to us there, he mentioned the fact that you know if if this does fall through, and that the NRT team essentially you know goes bust you would imagine 
Um, now, it would be very last minute. You'd imagine Yamaha are going to want to try and facilitate a ride for Clozel somewhere at the last minute to try and get him mm. on the grid and keep him on the grid so he keeps him in the championship, even though Yamaha are pretty much guaranteed to win this championship anyway. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it would be a, a terrible way for it to be decided. Um, it is looking a two-horse race at the moment between uh, Cortese and Clozel, assuming Clozel races this weekend. But... Outside of those two, if we're talking about the likes of uh, Krumanaka, Karakasulo is fourth in the championship, and particularly the reigning champion, Lucas Mayas, he really is drinking in the last chance salute. I think all three of them might be at this point. Um, like, have... Yeah, I think it's a win or go home sort of race. Krumanaka, Karakasulo. The man in form of the rest of the contenders is Raffaele the Rose, who's been the consistent guy that's been on the podium for the last five races, even coming up to a second, a career-high finish for him last time out at Masano. Um, and, you know, getting closer and closer to that win for MV that they'd be so desperate to have in a field of Yamaha-related dominance. But, you know, Karakasulo might be the guy to watch here this weekend. He seems to have the biggest upside of the other four at the moment. Um, because Krumanaka... Yeah, yeah, Krumanaka... Yeah, Krumanaka has struggled the last few races to show that early season form that he had. The highest, I don't know what's going on with him, um, not had a podium since the second round out in Thailand where he got Krimanakad, ironically. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, Karakuzano won last, he dominated last time out of Misano, but he's been Mr. Inconsistency this season. So, like, I can already, three... already think of another potential new name for this podcast. If DeRosa wins, we riot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to see that guy get a win. Uh, yes, because he's please. had a tremendous season, DeRosa, on the MV Augusta. Just imagine if he suddenly forces his way into championship contention and uh, somehow Yamaha failed to win their own championship uh, mm-hmm. the way it's gone this season. Um, That'd be beautiful. Yeah, World Super Bikes, um, World Super Sport, World Super Sport 300, and Stock Thousand, which could also be wrapped up this weekend in favor of Marcus Reiterberger. Um, we'll review it all um, next week, as well as the first round of the British Superbike Championship Showdown. And uh, we've got a couple of minutes to, to look ahead to this showdown. It already looks very much like Leon Haslam's to lose. It's amazing, really, to show how dominant he's been in this season, regular season, that he actually starts the British Superbike Showdown, and mathematically, he doesn't have to win a single race to win the title. Yeah, uh, mathematically speaking, he can finish second for seven rounds and and he still feasibly win the championship. Uh, He's got that many points in hand already. Realistically, if I'm Haslam, I'm thinking with his form, he's won the last five races in BSB now. Um, win the first four of this showdown, and it's probably already yours before you even have to go to Brand Hatch because there is no yeah. consistent number two guy right now. I was now. going to Dixon. ask that. Would that be your would that be your approach for Haslam? Given how bad luck seems to follow him around Brands Hatch in the last couple of years, I guess you get the points on the board early. Exactly. Um, he goes very well around Nassen, which is useful. And Alton Park, he, again, he had the double there. I think he had, he had the double last year. But uh, he's again, he, he likes the, the first two tracks coming up. He's strong at Nassen. He, he took Shaky Burn to his limit there last year. Um, and he's strong at Alton Park. He's done very well around there before as well. So Haslam's got to be thinking, win the first four, and it's probably already sealed because at worst, he'll have a 65-point lead with only 75 available at Brands Hatch. And given that the rest of the field right now are beating each other up, like Glenn Irwin, like Josh Brooks, like Bradley Ray, like Jake Dixon, who are all fighting for the minor podium, it only, it only opens the gap out further for Haslam 
if if and there's no consistent second runner and Haslam's able to win, keep winning, which right now he is. No one can touch him right now. He's winning everything um, at the moment. So Haslam's going to be thinking, win the first four, and he probably doesn't even have to worry about Brands Hatch. He probably would have already won the title going into the weekend on Saturday. So... Yeah, um, if I'm Hazard, I'm thinking win these first four at all costs, but don't do anything stupid just to jeopardize. Don't get with. hurt. Yeah, just don't, don't get, get hurt. hurt. Uh, don't fall off the bike. Whatever happens this weekend at Alton Park for the showdown opener, we'll review it uh, next week uh, here on Bike Live, um, here on Motorsport 101. That will be episode 79. Uh, with uh, 2 a.m. fast approaching, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, a huge thank you uh, to all of you that have listened in live through the night. You guys are fantastic. Uh, you guys are brilliant uh, here on uh, Bike Live. Um, before we go, though, places you can find us Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. On Twitter, we are at Motorsport underscore 101. On YouTube, it's dot com slash Motorsport 101. Our website is Motorsport101.com. And once again, if you'll like us so much, um, if you're listening to us at 2 a.m., you must like us a lot. Uh, back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, if you back us at the $5 level, you get early access um, next week to episode 161, um, which um, it's, it's a bit of a big one this straight. It may well be a double again next week um, because we have, an Indi- we have an IndyCar championship to be decided uh, at Sonoma. And... Um, if you're a Ferrari fan or a Sebastian Vettel fan with the Singapore Grand Prix coming up, um, some demons need banishing, Dre. Too fucking right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is the big one, folks. Um, yeah, uh, this did, like I I would softly predict a doubleheader next week. Um, sorry, Lewis. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, Singapore Grand Prix this weekend again like this is the one that this is the golden goose for Ferrari the one they've circled on the calendar for a last few rounds they always go well in Singapore and last year still hurts and last year still has the sting of, of the double DNF at turn one which effectively ended the championship fight for Ferrari on both major fronts uh, and, Lewis and if they don't win this Steve- weekend their championship hopes will almost end again this year yeah it's like for Seb it's probably over if he doesn't He's already 30 points down. This is a big weekend, potential for a big swing in terms of points, because there's a good chance Hamilton doesn't finish on the podium here, because Red Bull tend to go very strong here as well. Although I did hear in the press a couple of days ago, they're not so confident about this weekend. They're saying they're probably about 0.4 behind on Ferrari at the moment, so it could be it could be a big weekend for Ferrari. They're going to be thinking 1-2 here, and that would be very nice indeed to take maximum points out of Hamilton. So... Yeah, this is a critical round for Sebastian and for, I remember, Ferrari is still only 25 off the Constructors title as well. That's still all to play for as well. It's it's tight in both cases here. And yeah, if you're Ferrari, this is the golden goose. You've circled this round for quite some time. The painful memories of last year still sting. It's an absolutely critical round. And yeah, it could all be at stake for Sebastian that weekend. So the Singapore Grand Prix... Uh, oh, uh, the big one for Ferrari and a, a vital round for their championship this weekend. Oh, and did I mention rain's been forecast? Oh, no. Because rain's been forecast. Have fun with that one. But uh, the Singapore week, Grand Prix weekend, in all its glory, in 161, 
I'm going to tentatively suggest 162 as well later that week. I'll give you five confirmation on that early next week on the on the podcast Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101, but most likely 162 will be separate as well. The IndyCar Championship finale for what seemingly could be the final time at Sonoma this weekend as well. Shout out to our friend of the show, Sarah Connors, who will be rooting hard for Alex yeah. Rossi. This weekend, between, again, the, the two guys there, Scott Dixon and Alex Rossi, 29 points apart going into the final round. Which is there. not and big remember, as big as it sounds. Exactly, because remember, it is double points at Sonoma. So 108 points are, are potentially at stake going into this final round. Because remember, they give out points for pole position, laps led, and most laps led in IndyCar as well. So there's all sorts of mathematical permutations. Highly advice, check out friend of the show, Zoe, Zoe Hamilton's spreadsheet, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> you may for need all it. the potential. You may need it for all the possible permutations, because technically speaking, Will Power and Joseph Newgarden can still somehow win this title, even though they're both 87 points behind as well. So there's still a chance, a very slim one, that a Penske still comes out on top. Probably not. It's, it's going to most likely be Dixon versus Rossi, the old school versus... Versus the new guard. Um, new Zealand versus America at Sonoma. The final round of the IndyCar Championship at Sonoma this weekend. We've got it all for you on Motorsport 101 next week. Yeah, do tune in to those. Uh, my thanks to Andre Harrison for joining me this morning um, for Bike Live. <laughs> um, my thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we love all your support. So thank you very much um, for that. We will be back at a more sensible hour if you're listening live um, next week for Bike Live for episode um 79 uh we will break down the return of world superbikes it feels like forever since we've last talked about world superbikes they're back at portman this weekend and alton parks british superbike showdown opener this weekend um but that was episode 78 of bike live as leon haslam took flight can he now take the title we will see you next week